0: This is Infants on Thrones, the philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core.
1: Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is part four of our series on a manual for creating atheists. Now, as it stands right now, I expect that there will be a part five of this series where we look at a Street Epistemologist YouTube video featuring a treatment that's being applied to Mormon missionaries. Now, we're actually going to be recording that discussion tonight, which is Sunday, September 23rd at 10 p.m. Eastern. Patreon supporters are able to sit in and participate as well if they'd like, so check the details on our Patreon page if you're interested. And there will probably be an eventual part six of this series as well where I talk with one or two of these YouTube street epistemologists and we wrap up this series. But today, we're going to talk about relativism, which is really what kicked this series off in the first place. Hey, infants. As I listen to recent episodes of your podcast, I get the impression that many of you have become relativists. This type of thinking seems, at least to me, be voiced often lately, though I may just be reaching because this has been a topic often on my mind in the recent weeks. I've read A Manual for Creating Atheists by Peter Boghossian, in which he rips apart relativism and goes through how to teach people that relativism is not a reliable way of processing the world. I'm currently reading The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which so far feels like he believes relativism is a great mindset, though I haven't finished the book yet. I know Glenn loves this book, and he probably has good insight to this. I think a podcast on relativism would be a fascinating discussion. Let me know if you already released an episode on this, and I just missed the boat. I would love to listen. Thanks, Ben. Now, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Today's episode is not going to be the definitive discussion on relativism. Unless, of course, for you it is. See what I just did there? (laughs) Now, hopefully you listened to the episode just previous to this one, which was recorded at the same time that we record this with the same people, but focused mainly on video blogger Jeremy Goff's sadly laughable claim that excommunication is an act of love. We do refer to that a couple of times in this conversation today. But, uh, you know, like calling excommunication an act of love, isn't that what uh, an abuser does? Isn't that how abusers often call the act of abuse? They say, you know, I'm sorry that you made me do this to you. I'm only doing this because you're really, really horribly bad. And I tough love you so much that I'll do whatever it takes to whip your sad ass back into acceptable shape. You're that bad and I love you that much. I mean, it's just gross. It's gross. But anyway, so today you'll see where that piece of the conversation, that review of Jeremy Goff fit into this overall conversation between myself and Tom and Matt and Delaney and Patreon supporter Peter, who sat in as we recorded this live, and of course our special returning guest panelist, Chelsea Shields. But before I get into today's episode, I want to spend some time defining relativism, because it's tricky. And if today's conversation shows anything, it's how different people with different views can think that they're talking about the same issues when really, who knows what the hell any of us are ever really talking about, or why we're talking about it, or sometimes even how we're talking about it. Because Matt comes at this from his perspective as a former sex crimes prosecutor turned criminal defense attorney who has been spending a lot of time recently trying to better understand the different roles that he plays in his life as a man, a husband, a father, a former Mormon, a podcaster, and all of the experiences that he's had with so many different types of processes and outcomes some are unique to his experiences. And frankly, Matt didn't find Peter Boghossian particularly relevant or interesting. And that's a goddamn problem with Boghossian. Every time I heard his clip, like, what the fuck are you talking about?
2: What?
0: I can say something, man. Let's talk about the issues, not around the issues. You don't think he's talking about the issues? No, because I think, again, it, we have to get in very clear specifics and very conversations with very specific people. Because one of the problems that he's talking about relativism is all these data points. Before we talk about how to have this approach... I better know who that person is across from me, what their experience is, what are the complexities in their life? What are the things in yes. the moment that they're dealing with right now, today? Did they just not sleep? Did they just have one of the worst blow ups with their kid? Is their kid suicidal? This approach and the criticism to relativism, and especially because it's it's difficult to really understand what that means, provides too much cover for people to not be relativists in areas that they ought to be. And one of the areas I was thinking about
1: was love. And then you have Chelsea, who comes at this from her perspective as a double PhD in both cultural anthropology and biological anthropology, as well as her roles as a woman and a mother and a former teacher, a former Mormon, a former field ethnographer, and probably a future advocate for chickens' rights. As long as they are alive. If
3: the chicken's dead and he just has this weird sexual fetish, I'm with Tom.
1: Don't ask. You'll get all that context soon enough. And of course, Tom comes into this discussion with his unique background and Delaney with hers and me with mine. And all of us tried to wrestle with this idea of relativism and follow the organic course of this discussion the best that we could. But, having listened back to this several times now, I'm still not convinced that we were all talking about the same thing. But that kind of illustrates the point, doesn't it? Because, alright, here's the definition of relativism. Relativism is the idea that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context, that they're not absolute. Relativism is the idea that, that views are relative to differences in perception and consideration. There is no universal truth, there is no objective truth according to relativism, rather that each point of view has its own truth. So relativism essentially means that truth or perceived reality is dependent upon the relationships between things. So if someone asks, is such and such true? And your answer is, well, it depends on yada, yada, yada. Well, that's basically an example of relativism. If you're convinced that there's no way that there is a God and you ask someone, do you believe in God? Or if you ask, do you believe that the earth is 6,000 years old? Or you ask, do you believe that having sexual intercourse with the carcass of a dead chicken before you cook it and eat it is wrong?
3: If the chicken's dead and he just has this weird sexual fetish, I'm with Tom. And they say, well, that depends
1: on yada, 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 yada. You know, that can be really, really frustrating. Because you ask those questions because you want a clear-cut answer. And science, science gives clear-cut answers, right? Right? Well, before you brush all of this stuff off and say, oh, ridiculous, of course there is universal objective truth. Science would never put up with this crap. Let me tell you a little bit about Albert Einstein, because Einstein demonstrated as a universal objective truth, mind you, the theory of relativity. Special relativity, where the laws of physics are the same for all observers in uniform motion relative to one another. But when that motion is not uniform, for example, when someone is sitting on a park bench and another person is walking towards that person on the park bench, well, the laws of physics are no longer uniformly experienced by both of those people. They're relative to each person's position and movement through space and time.
3: I mean Einstein's theory of relativity. It's the you know the way we learned about it in school. You know, there's a guy on a train and a guy on a platform, a light gets put on. To the guy on the train, oh, all the lights came out at the same time. To the guy on the platform, because of time, speed, light, right? It looks like it comes off at different times. So where you are standing determines the truth or the reality of that experience.
1: So the idea that relativity Is it odds with scientific objective reality? For me, it's kind of super tricky right off the bat. Add to that the different types of relativity that we talked about today, because cultural relativity or cultural relativism is not the same thing as moral relativism, and neither are the same thing as epistemological relativism, but we use those terms interchangeably as if they all mean the same thing and they don't. So cultural relativism is the idea that a person's beliefs, values, and practices can only be understood when viewed through the eyes of that person's culture rather than be judged against somebody outside of the culture. And if you think that you're influenced by only one culture, by the way, think again. So a lot of what we talk about in today's conversation falls under this category of cultural relativism, but but there's also moral relativism, and moral relativism is concerned with the differences in moral judgments in what is considered universally to be right or wrong across different peoples and cultures. And there's different kinds of moral relativism. There's descriptive moral relativism that holds that some people do in fact disagree about what is moral. There's meta-ethical moral relativism which holds that in such disagreements nobody is objectively right or wrong. And normative moral relativism holds that because nobody is right or wrong we ought to tolerate the behavior of others even when we disagree about the morality of it. Now, Peter Boghossian's claim is that both cultural and moral relativism, that these influences have creeped their way into epistemology. And he sees this as a dangerous and false conflation of those ideas. And by epistemological relativism, he means that any way of coming to knowledge is just as good as any other. So, you see how tricky and pedantic it is to keep all of this straight, right? And how many of us really have the patience or the discipline or the interest to untangle this big knotted ball of sentences and words and definitions? It was tricky for us as a panel to have this difficult but interesting and often thought provoking discussion. In the end, Do we shed any light on either the dangers or the benefits of cultural, moral, or epistemological relativism? Well, that all kind of depends, doesn't it, on how you end up seeing this? See what I did just there? All right, so let's just get right into the conversation. It's a long one, but I hope you enjoy it. Hi guys! Hi me. Chelsea, how are you doing? Hey,
3: how's it going? This Good. Fun. It's been a long time.
1: It has been. What have you been up to?
3: Life. I'm I'm working on a bunch of big projects and and. Of course you are. Hoping to get back to academia here soon and finish yeah. a book and all mm-hmm. the things.
1: Are you writing a book? Yeah. Now you 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 got a double PhD right and and it was uh, anthropology and. Was it
3: Bi- evolutionary
1: biology or?
3: Yeah. So I'd started in cultural mm-hmm. anthropology. This is why this topic is so important. Is right. I hated the ambiguity. I hated, like I would be teaching a class on African studies, knowing the language speaking, you know, and be then told I'm being culturally having cultural appropriation. And I'm like, crap, well, I don't want that. Right. Yeah. And then you have, as a young anthropologist, postmodern anthropology is all like, you can't say anything. It has to be the, the voice. And, So it's, everyone's just so careful. It's exactly what some of your listeners are frustrated with. (laughs) I just want an answer. I want to be able to find the science of it, the permanency, the objectivity. And so I actually started a whole other degree in the biological anthropology, which is more the human evolution, evolutionary psychology, evolutionary Mm -hmm. science and how the body develops. So at least I could like dive a little deeper into those answers and for the moment have some (laughs) objective truth. And so that's, exactly
1: what I did. Cool. Well, it, it will be invaluable to have your uh your voice as part of tonight's episode. We got some fun clips. Um and in in addition to the clips that you heard, um I I added some Jonathan Height Stuff from the righteous mind. Of course, um, you did. Yeah, so we, we can we can play a little quiz, and, and I'll say, "Is this moral or immoral?" And we'll play the clip. <laughs> <laughs> what he describes. I don't
3: want to do that. I'll mess up.
1: <laughs> You'll mess up.
3: Yes, I'll say the wrong thing. Someone will get pissed.
1: Awesome. Yes, that's
2: what we're all about, right, Tom? That's right. Let's get people pissed.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So welcome, Peter and Wendy, who are sitting in and and, uh, joining us, um, our Patreon supporters. We may have a few more join in. It it seems like the last few times we've done this, we've had maybe three, four or five people on uh, at at any given time. So if if, uh, either of you, Peter or Wendy, have something that you want to say, feel free to to jump in at at any point. Um, Before we get to the bulk of the uh the the episode and play those clips i want to um do kind of like a (laughs) i don't know if it's quite mystery science theater 3000 style there's a a video like a, a a vlog a video blog that somebody made last sunday he's a 27 year old faithful mormon named jeremy goff who does a blog called my life and he he uh Sets the record straight about ex-Mormon lies and myths. Um, Ooh, and, and so he,
2: he was talking, uh, explaining excommunication. And that's the thing is, like Jeremy's not going to be aware of it because he doesn't see it. He's not affiliated with all that kind of stuff, but I've seen it. I've seen he's, it. he's recused himself of the need to do any of that
1: because he's he for for the reason that you stated earlier he has deferred any decision making authority to his leaders you got you guys just tell me what to do and i'll do it and i don't have to reason it 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 plays right into this whole faith as epistemology discussion because he's like i i don't need to figure out how to come to knowledge i don't need to have to figure out how to like figure out truth for myself to be able to parse out when the church leaders are saying the right thing or when they're saying the wrong thing. Cause I just have faith that they are the representatives of God and that, that decision has been made for me. And so, I mean, this is right there in that faith as epistemology thing. And, and so the, the the topic that we're going to focus on tonight is this moral relativism topic that one of our listeners, you know, the reason we've done this review, this is the fourth part the reason we've done this is because he sent the email and said, It sounds to me like infants on thrones are becoming moral relativists. What gives? And I, I would say if we really were moral relativists, we would be saying, Oh, sure, whatever Jeremy thinks is okay. <laughs> it's, it's all right. His his way of coming to knowledge is it's all right. Don't don't question. It's not wrong what he's saying, but I don't I don't hear anybody saying that. Nope. So All right. So let's, let's, let's kick it off with um, a little bit of an introduction because we, we, we talked a bit before Chelsea, but um, welcome back to Infants on Thrones. It's been probably what, four years, maybe.
4: Oh, it's been, it's been a, a,
1: it's been a long time. um, But having you on for the moral relativism uh, conversation, I'm really excited about. Um, But, but, Talk so that I don't have to let listeners know what, what have you been up to over the last four years, and um, what, what, what do you expect to uh, talk about tonight with this moral relativism stuff?
3: Well, I'm excited. This is a fun topic. I brought out some of my old, like, Anthro 101 texts and the kind of the debates I used to have with students, and I haven't been working in academia for the last four years, and so my heart's, like, missing it. So this is a really fun night for me. Um, Same old, same old. I mean, I finished up the cultural and biological anthropology PhDs. And so I finally walked, which has taken me quite a few years as a single mom and provider. So that was a huge moment, a really fun moment. Um, I've gotten off social media just for all the research and all the privacy and figuring out mental health stuff because I study uh, social science and what actually makes people happy or not happy and how the placebo effect, right? How human interaction affects our bodies. And so just having done enough of that research, I figured like, Oh my gosh, this is the worst thing that's happening to us. And our family, all even our teens, we have a 16 year old and a 13 year old and everyone's off social media. And it's been a really interesting year. We've kind of done an experiment year. Um, and so I'm not as connected to everyone, but that's kind of where I'm at. And I'm so excited to talk about this subject today.
1: Wait, this is going to take us totally off topic, but I find it Sorry. fascinating. Are you, <laughs> no, are you saying that, that, that social media is scratching a, a social itch for people that's ma- that is, is having a placebo effect? on? It. It's making us feel like we're connected to groups of people, but we're really not. We're connected to these electronic devices. Is that what you're saying?
3: No, I'm kind of saying something okay. a little opposite. I'll hurry right. and explain it differently. So when, when we talk about the placebo effect, we're not necessarily talking about something fake causing something real. Yeah. What we're talking about is the effect of a meaning or a cultural interaction or a social interaction. Something that is non-physical can then trigger or elicit biological processes. So social interactions give us different emotions, give us different chemical, give us oxytocin, you know, any kind of social interaction gives us something. It might also make us feel sick. We might feel embarrassed. We might be like, shit, why did I say that? You know, we also feel bad with social interactions. What's happening is we have so many devices on our micro, you know, to read micro expressions, neural neurons. We have spindle neurons that allow our emotions and our executive functioning in the prefrontal cortex to meet really quickly for us to read facial expression. So I can read Glenn, if you're mad at me, I can kind of pick up if you're on my side, Mm -hmm. you know, in my big family of like 52 cousins and nine uncles and aunts that everyone's still Mormon, I would never go up to my most conservative cousin and talk about my politics or my abortion views. Right. But what social media did is it made all of that on the same level playing field where we're not allowed to read social expression. So it's basically very, very low quality social interaction where the, Ability to make mistakes is so great that it often causes worse social pain than if you just got rid of it altogether and had more of these high quality social interactions.
1: But because because we don't have the nonverbal cues to tell us how we should present ourselves to the audience, it's just like this blank.
3: Well, slide. and it's kind of combined all our audiences. So I, right. I know how to present myself to my Mormon family, but I also know how to present myself to my liberal feminist right wing you know, uh, activists, but I would not necessarily say the same thing to that same audience. And yet that's what Facebook's doing. It's flattening that social circle. So you can't be as careful, but on top of that, you still have your biology. So if someone says a mean comment, I mean, I, after my Ted talk, I basically was like not talking to anyone, but my close family for a year. Cause I just got so much hate mm-hmm. and my body still takes that. It, it, I'm not Because it's digital doesn't mean it didn't affect me. There's still a social biological reaction that happens from any social interaction. There's a reason why. I'll tell you the evolutionary, you know, study someday, but it still happens. So basically you're setting yourself up for lots of low quality social connections, lots of um, mistakes that are being made and your body's taking the brunt of all that. And it was never meant for it. We have all these adaptations we're kind of bypassing and it's hurting us.
1: That's really interesting. We, 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 we'll, we need to invite you back on to do an uh, episode that unpacks more of that because
5: absolutely. I, I find that absolutely
1: out. fascinating. <laughs> uh, it's not getting edited out. <laughs> I know. I know. It might get Easter egg, but um, yeah, we'll see. Cool. Well, welcome back, Chelsea. And then we also have Delaney here. Um, and this is the fourth time you, you've been with us for each one of these in the series. How are you doing, Delaney.
6: I'm doing well. It's been a pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you on. And Tom's back for his third of the four. We missed you last week, Tom. Hey, I missed you too. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've got Matt. Then and, and Matt, this is your first venture into the uh, manual for creating atheists. How you doing, Matt? Yeah. And I, I, feel, I feel like I'm <laughs> back on Mormon expression. <laughs> like running down the horn, introducing all the panelists. Well, we don't do that on Infants on Thrones. What the hell are you doing? So, yeah, well, we had kind of a weird start with that uh, that Jeremy guy. And then and then we've got Wendy and Peter who are in the peanut gallery watching us right now. So welcome to the two of you. Um, Hi, Chelsea, it's good to see you again.
3: It's really good to see you too, Matt. I can see just the top of your head, though. I know. I,
0: can, I started lounging here. I can get back in the frame.
2: Make yourself comfortable, dude. Yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. So I, I,
1: I think, um, as I was preparing for this and, and really, I mean, we've done, this is the fourth episode that all started because of this moral relativism that, you know, <laughs> been working up towards it. And I, I think just in the last couple of days in putting the clips together and trying to think about it, I've started to understand it in a different way than I did before. And I think it's really helpful. Um, it, it it'll come out in some of these clips that, um, that we're going to be listening to tonight. But I think, I think what Peter Boghossian is basically saying is that because because he spends some time in this chapter talking about the history of liberalism and and liberal thought in the U S and he he says that at at one point, because there was um, so much emphasis on tolerance and inclusion and multiculturalism that you've got certain areas where you can't really, say that one culture is superior to another. And so there's this thing called cultural relativism that developed. And then from that idea of cultural relativism, it it shifted to maybe like a moral relativism where uh, you would say that even, not just cultural practices, but also morals um, are culture bound instead of being an objective Kind of morality, and that then it even evolved—or I evolved—is the wrong word. But it, it encroached. I think he, he talks about it as like a parasite into the, the realm of epistemology, where you've got epistemological relativism. So, so you've got like this. Progression of cultural relativism moral relativism and then eventually epistemological relativism where any type of way of coming to knowledge any, you know, he talked about Ouija boards or, you know, traditional shamanic practices would trump scientific um, discoveries uh, that can be falsifiable and, you know, objective and, and all these things and people started thinking not only can you not know anything objectively um, you really shouldn't even go into that because that makes you a bad person as a as a if, you, if you're a relativist because you don't want to contradict anybody. So I, that's kind of my overall takeaway of what I think he's saying here in the relationship. But so I wanted to kind of lead with that. I, I don't know if you if if others if you see it that way. If I'm right, if I'm wrong, but I kind of want to pose that as a question as we work through tonight. Did it, did that make sense? What I said?
6: Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. So let me start with the first clip where he's going to talk about what he means by epistemological relativism and how his students would always say,
7: well, that's just true for you, what you're talking about. The purpose of this section is to teach readers how to disabuse others of epistemological relativism. That is, any way to come to knowledge is just as good as any other. Well, that's just true for you. When I started teaching critical thinking more than two decades ago, my attempts to undermine relativism were met with a common student refrain. Well, that's just true for you. Any argument I presented was either met with this mantra or with a similar utterance. You perceive through your own cultural lens, or you can't escape your Western hegemonic imperialistic white male situated perspective At first, I was stymied by these responses. No matter what examples I presented or what my reasoning was, I always met the same one-line objections. Over time, because of my experience teaching prison inmates, tens of thousands of students at colleges and universities throughout the country, and people on the street, I came to the conclusion that not only was this problem pervasive, but that it also made it impossible for me to teach people how to improve their reasoning. In order to reason well, one needs to be able to rule out competing or irrelevant alternatives. But one cannot do this if one believes that there's no way to make an objective judgment about those alternatives.
2: I I actually don't disagree with much of what he said. Yeah, I'm pretty much on board with all of his claims and his notions. I I yeah, I'm just nodding my head. Yeah.
6: Yeah, I'm actually excited about this one because I agree with most of what he says instead of disagreeing
2: with. <laughs> right, <laughs>
1: right. the
6: whole time. So, it's a nice change.
1: Yeah, and and I I mean, I I think the the disagreement that we've had is more about approach and tone right. than it, yeah. than it is content. Yeah. Uh, I'll
3: disagree in kind of uh what he's saying. I good. I so I actually, just to give with, us
1: something what, to talk about. Yes,
3: okay. I agree <laughs> with what the Like what he's saying, I think it's built on the wrong premises. All so right. for me, it's about which knowledge base do you value? So I have been to conferences and I've talked and I've heard people in the back of the room say, well, that's what she thinks. And I think, mm-hmm. man, why did I go to thirteen years of school? Why did I take anthropology so seriously and rigorously and like work so hard if it doesn't if what I say is the same as someone who didn't do all that training right and they just stood up and talked about evolution, whatever their ideas were right if if we're equivalent, then all of that work is useless. So on that one idea, I agree, but on the other idea, I think he's 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 trying to make that universal. he's trying to say. If, if, you know, Western philosophical insight was is correct, then everyone should listen to me in every single context. That's not true, right? If we're in a hospital and someone breaks a leg and here's a doctor that really got trained, here's the one that didn't, yes, you'll probably choose the doctor. But if this guy showed up to a church, you know, a testimony meeting, no one in the room would think he was correct. It's all based on, on context and he, of what knowledge base you value. And he's trying to assert that, because I have this Western degree in this Western world, I should be given this this valuable knowledge base every single context I'm in, and that's not true. I shouldn't listen to him in ninety percent of contexts, but if he's talking about the thing he knows best, yeah, he, he trumps mine.
1: Yeah, uh, what what are different knowledge? Ba- like you talked about different knowledge bases as if they're a thing. Um, like it depends on your knowledge base and and how contextualized that is. Can you give me some examples of like knowledge bases? What do you mean when you're saying that?
3: Sure. So, you know, if I go over to West Africa as a white person and I try to inculcate, you know, public health policy, people aren't going to listen to me as well. I don't know the cultural context. I know the communication style. And we've learned that over time when we've tried to make sure people on the ground at really good health organizations are locals. They understand the language. They understand what's appropriate and not appropriate. And it's actually saved millions of lives. I mean, I could tell a history right now of how many lives American public health workers have lost, not meaning to. They meant well. They had the knowledge base in the Western context, right? They just weren't able to have the knowledge they needed to truly implement things that didn't also cause as much harm. And so I shouldn't listen to them if, if I'm in this context. If I'm in public health school at NYU, heck yeah, I should listen to everything they're saying. I had a question.
6: So he describes cultural relativism, relativism as if that's somebody's worldview, like, like there is relative truth, but everybody knows that culture is relative and truth is relative to culture. So uh, people's truth is relative, but that doesn't mean there isn't objective truth. It just means that we all have a different perspective and, and it should carry weight in trying to figure out issues in specific cultures or you know, specific parts in the world where they they have this filter that's unique to them. I see does that make me a cultural relativist because I'm I still believe in objective truth. They might be wrong about something, but you still have to work through their culture
1: yeah. to address it. I, I think I, I think this is this, this is what I was trying to say earlier, where I think I, I think there's a difference between cultural relativism and epistemological relativism. Where I, I think that epistemological relativism is a form of relativism that is very narrowly uh, focused on the way that people come to knowledge, um, whereas cultural relativism could be about any cultural Practice right. and and I think it's a lot easier to to be kind of give and take, soft, respectful, uh, tolerant of of culture, th- things that are are different, different culturally because of cultural differences than epistemological differences. Like, like if you're talking about the age of the Earth, mm-hmm. how 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 are you accepting the age of the Earth? Are you accepting it because of what? mainstream science peer review data is telling us or is it because of a book of scripture and faith claims i i I think that's that that that's the difference when 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 the cultural part of it bumps into the epistemological part that that's the question of you know because i think i'm probably a cultural relativist maybe i'm even a moral relativist but i'm not definitely an epistemological relativist In in those sense, and I I think that's where it can easily get confused and the the lines can be blurred. But what he's focusing on, I think, is this epistemological relativism. Well, he focuses on
0: uh, two things, processes and conclusions. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right when you're talking about processes and conclusions. The the only time that perhaps we ought care is is dependent on what the, the application of those conclusions are. The, the processes I I could I could really care less about if that's whatever some if somebody wants to make a decision in their life about a Ouija board, uh, I I can quarrel with the process, but if that's their choice for them, that's fine. Now so perhaps that makes me a moral relativist or even a uh, an a epist- to say the word, a thinking rel- <laughs> epistemological <laughs> epistemological <laughs> relativist. But then I go to the, what's your conclusion? What did that Ouija board tell you? Well, it's dependent on what the question was, what the conclusion is. Well, it, 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 it tell me I should, you know, I eat, um, you know, I'm going to eat wheat bread instead of white bread. Oh, great. Fantastic. That sounds like a great process for you. As far as making those decisions, that can be very, very challenging for other people. And some people are crippled by having to make decisions without these other tools. And so if that's a tool that gets them to a healthy place of making a decision, great. Now, if you tell me, well, I'm now going to murder somebody because the Ouija board told me I have a problem with your conclusions and problems with the process that led to the conclusion. So distinguishing those two and getting in the weeds about what is each one of those matters. And herein is our problem. When we say relativist, moral relativist, as if that's a thing, and we understand explicitly what we're saying when we say processes, conclusions, thinking, all these different things, we are interpreting our own fictions of what that means for us. And so now we are engaged in relativism because we don't, don't even have a agreement concretely about what the fuck we're talking about in the first place. So (laughs) Hosian (laughs) Boghossian first ought to be more explicit in what process we're talking about and what conclusion we're talking about and then what the integration or application of that conclusion is. So, for example, let me give two examples. Flat earthers, my gosh, their process and their conclusion sucks. Well, what's the application? Fucking nothing. Fucking nothing. So I don't care. Now, that same person may have a different process and a different conclusion about an application I do care about, and I may agree with that person as it as it affects the conclusion that they integrate that, that I apply that affects me. Great. You're a shitball wacko when it comes to flat earth, but you dig to recycle, homie. Let me wrap my arms around you because <laughs> your process and conclusion got to a place that I can, I can breathe with comfortably, all right? Let me do another example. A month ago, a man walks into my office. And he says, my four-year-old daughter was raped. And I went to the police. And I don't really know what's going on. I don't really speak this language and the police tell me I don't need a lawyer, but I'm scared and I'm from Iran and I just don't really know what's going on. My gosh, you just stumbled on the greatest attorney you ever could have, sir. I know how to protect you and your daughter. I know how to protect you from, from the police and help you with the police And I know the people that you're dealing with right now. I know the cops that you're dealing with really well. And yeah, you've got some issues, but we're going to get together and we're going to make sure that you're protected because there's concerns now about orders of protection, all these things. I said, here's the thing. You're in really good hands. My partner's wife speaks your language because she's from your country. Isn't this a great thing? All the resources that we have, isn't this a beautiful thing? He says, I have no money. I said, well, don't worry about that. Given what you've described, I want to take care of you. And I want to do this pro bono because your daughter deserves that. How happy I was. This would be a testimony moment to come in, ladies and gentlemen. This is how I know God is real. He brought this man into my office to protect his four-year-old daughter, the only man who can protect him. How many people are me? How many people have a partner with a wife who speaks this language? And I got a call about an hour later. So, Mr. Long, please forget my number. Please don't talk to your partner. Please don't talk to his wife. Please don't let them know I walked in there. We can't, nobody can know. Nobody can know. And if she's from my country, she may know people we know. I'm sorry, I can't, I do not want your help. There's application of a process and a conclusion that had impact. But my lack of understanding of that truth that is what he needed was a stranger to protect him not somebody that he could connect with that's a truth that i now have to apply into my practice and into my life and in dealing with other people because the complexity of what that man was dealing with was lost because i didn't have the perspective because i didn't have his perceptions the awareness of that must force us to be open to listening if nothing else and to approach the world from a more relative approach to expand our perceptions knowing that our perceptions are flawed and to our, expand our perspective knowing that our perspective is always limited
1: and and you know there, there's a, there's a phrase matt that um we, we've used quite a bit the last couple months. Um, is it simple but complex, or complex but nuanced? It's something like that. Complex and subtle. Com- complex and subtle. And and I, I mean, to to me, that's a lot of what you're saying. That's a lot of what what I think the value <clears throat> of cultural relativism, moral relativism, brings is recognizing things aren't that simple. There there are a lot of influencing variable. factors, contributing factors to things, and you have to be really really careful. When like you see a problem, you want to solve it, and you think, okay, boom, let's do it this way. Well, hang on a second. Yeah, you know, we're like, not, like we're not all vanilla ice, right? If
7: there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out
0: the hook while my DJ revolves it. I mean, are any of us? Well, you know, if there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ revolves it. Ice, ice, baby. Yeah. Oh my baby. gosh. Um,
1: uh, thank you for that. Sorry, that was.
0: <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> These lyrics just in my head, and you hit a phrase, and it just scratches an itch, and I just have to get it out. I'm sorry. You
1: know, I I, I can relate to that, my friend. <laughs> yeah. I know how that is.
0: Yeah. Slide <laughs> gate was open. Sorry. So, um, one of the I I was very close to going into, um, uh, you know, so psychology as a uh is a graduate school, and I was just I I really loved the um, studies, and particularly about the idea of confounding variables and unknown variables and really trying to develop a study that accounts for all those factors that could contribute to either a process or a conclusion and locking it down and saying, man, I did this so well. And what's so fun about those studies is seeing the other, the other um, experts in the field come in and be like, yeah, that was pretty good. But what about bop, 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 And what about bop, 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 And it's the bop, bop, That's so fun because you see, start seeing just how complex all these interactions and organisms are. And to me, it, life is a constant battle of engaging in a study every day and seeing what variables do I know and what variables do I not know and what variables confound this outcome and this process. So that's the approach. That's the epistemological approach, I think, that Hosian Boghossian is ultimately talking about. He's saying, let's apply a, at the root of it the ability to be aware more broadly and move more slowly until you have sufficient data points that are replicatable and reliable enough because other people have said, yeah, that's my shit too. That's your shit too. We got enough people who agree on that shit. Now we say, okay, we're just going to act as if that is how it is. We're it's reliant. It's reliable because it's replicatable, Right. That's all life is, is one big giant psychological mind fuck study, trying to control and understand and expand the variables day in, day out, interaction in, interaction out. And we're really fucking bad at it because nice being God. So let's all pretend that we are God and ignore everything else.
1: I don't know what to do with that. Peter's got it.
5: I think part of the, part of the reason why we've struggled with, with the approach he's had is that it's, it's arrogant or it's impersonal. But I think the gap between Matt, what you're saying, and part of the reason we're struggling is it's the application of that in the way I think he's advocating it being applied that discounts the lived experience of people. And if you've got two opposing epistemologies, the movement from one to the other, the trying to get somebody to change their view, he doesn't have firsthand experience in how traumatic that can be. And so he's looking we, at it. Do, we, do you know
1: that Peter, that he doesn't?
5: That's true. I don't know that. I'm okay. assuming based
1: on the way he's writing. That, it sounds like he's not taking that into consideration is what you're saying.
5: Yeah. So Shermer, for example, in the introduction stated, pretty explicitly that he had seen kind of essentially both sides of the coin and that tempered the way he phrased things. I don't get that impression from him. So it's not necessarily that he's wrong. Like Matt, I agree exactly what you're saying is really the root of what he's trying to explain, but the, the what's next, the, how do you move somebody from one thing to the next discounts, how painful that can be and how you do that as opposed to should it be done is where I think a lot of the frustration
0: is coming from. Well, well, say, I, I just jumped to uh, should it be done or but is it even possibly done? I think that's ultimately the conflict is the belief that there's some some form of uh, persuasion that can move somebody off something like this. I think that's okay. the conflict. I did, there, there's no no way for that, that to happen. And that's just that's, that's
3: not true. I will disagree with you. Okay. <laughs> you you just,
0: you just done it.
3: <laughs> but I'll do it in a way that... It I, hope it's, it.
0: I hope you have a very good anecdotal example to just...
3: Dis- <laughs> I can never beat the one you just said because that was probably one of the most brilliant things I've ever heard and, and the way you expressed it. I I would record that and play it for my students. I mean, that was brilliant, so... But I, I will disagree that there is no formalized process of paradigm shifting or cultural change or how to get someone from one epistemological view to another. We mm. actually have some great science on that. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite books in the world, and Matt, you would love this. Everyone would love this. And I think I mentioned it once on a podcast before, so apologies, but it's been four years. So let's do it. Um, it's Thomas Kuhn's, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And what it does is it goes through the history of science and technology, and it shows when the idea, like the earth is round, all the way through every scientific revolution, about at first there's these stages of how people go from, no way, the earth is not round, I'm going to you know, kill you, <laughs> that angry. And it goes through, well, why are people angry at first when a new idea is presented? Why is the first stage, you know, so defensive. And it goes through, well, what's the next stage after you get over the anger and the defensiveness and the possibility that that's not even plausible, right? That opens up your paradigm a little. At first you resist, you resist. That's what keeps your world together. Second, opens up a little bit, but you kind of put it on the shelf. And that's literally a word he used. And it was the first time in science I had ever seen that put it on the shelf idea that we used in all of our Mormon upbringing. I was like, Oh, other people have this. And I started to make these connections between, you know, these scientific revolutions with the kind of my own paradigm shift, these revolutions of how people leave the church. And it really maps onto it. It's not a perfect map. It was never meant to like explain how people leave cultural paradigms, but his scientific revolution, you know, patterns really do follow what gets someone out of an entrenched mindset and into a more open mindset, and then into a place where they can actually accept and now defend this new mindset. And some there's some really great writing on that.
0: I, th- I think we I think we miscommunicated what I was what I was trying to evoke, but I, I'm I'm really happy that you. That, that caused you to say that because that, that's gonna. I wanna go see Thomas Kuhn and that sends me off in another area. So
1: that was valuable. Thank you. Cool. All right, I wanna play the next clip. And I think there's a connection between what he's about to say here <laughs> and things that we've been talking about, especially when we're talking about the uh, uh, maybe trying to understand why there might be immediate anger and resistance to a paradigm shift. Um, why there can be trauma as you're going um, from uh, w- one view to another. Um, and, and this is something that I, I, think, I think that technically
7: he's right, but I think maybe the application of
1: it is wrong, but we can talk about it after the clip. So let me bring it up here.
7: What I'm about to write may confound those inculcated in the academic zeitgeist, a criticism of a process like the process of understanding the age of the earth through reading ancient texts, or a criticism of a cultural practice, like using the metric system or making women cover themselves, or a criticism of a religious text, like the Book of Mormon or the Eurontia book, is not the same as a criticism of a person, nor is it the same as a criticism of a race of people, Granting ideas dignity has two consequences. The first consequence is that criticizing faith traditions becomes viewed as a form of hate speech, like saying the N-word. This kind of political correctness further buttresses faith from dialectical criticism. Most people won't criticize faith out of fear people will think they're not only bad people, but also that they're mean-spirited, angry, bigoted, prejudiced, insensitive, hateful people. Cognitive epistemological and moral relativism are toxins that students trained in the humanities regularly consume in large doses. They're taught to withhold judgments on different epistemologies, cultural practices, and moral systems. Consequently, their ability to make critical evaluations has been severely damaged. Before faith can be exposed as a faulty epistemology, it's vital to disabuse people of the relativist notion that any epistemology is either just as good as any other, a bizarre and contradictory egalitarian relativism, or that epistemologies are impossible to judge. All right, I I think the first thing that I
1: take some issue with. I mean, I think technically he's right. It's not the same thing to criticize a process as it is just to criticize the person who's doing that process or the group of people whose process that is. Technically, it's not the same thing. But emotionally, <laughs> it doesn't feel any different. And, and, and I, I, <laughs> I, I think that that kind of sums up the criticism that we've given to the approach and the tone so far in 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 reviewing this book I, and i i wonder if the the fact that they're not the same thing is used as cover to then say so i don't need to be sensitive or tolerant or respectful because if you give ideas cover you give them dignity then you run into all these problems that he that he talked about but i I, I kind of have some issue with that, um, and then maybe another direction that we could go with it is the the way that people are taught in university. Um, and I know that's that's his main area of ex- expertise, and so that's where he's really focusing. But that they're they're taught to not criticize other cultures or not criticize other epistemological views, and that that leads to to an inability to uh, make correct decisions or, or judgments on something. So, um, and, and I, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure. I I guess I'm, I want to
0: hear more about your, the, the emotional reaction to challenging a process.
1: Okay. Because I'm, I'm trying to, to, the first thing that I thought about Matt was when, when, when I was, um, having some issues with, things in the church. And I, I I was living in Japan. My dad was back here in Arizona. And so I was doing this long distance, trying to reach out, trying to engage him in some of these areas that I had a problem with. And I, I wrote like a list of, I don't know, 45 things I didn't like about the church and maybe 30 things that I did like about the church. I was trying to be balanced as much as I could. And as he, as he was reading this thing, all these things that I didn't like about the church, what he wrote back to me and his response was, um, it, it it showed that he thought that I was calling him a fool. That I thought that he yeah, was stupid. Yeah. It, it's right. like El, Elder Holland in that BBC interview where he's like, "Well, I, I've been to a good school. I've read some books. I, you know, I'm not a dodo." Kind of thing where the guy wasn't criticizing Holland per se. He was criticizing, or he, he was just reporting what other people had said as as critics. But but so my my whole point with the emotions on it, Matt, is that people are very connected to their faith, especially. Um, And, and when faith is their means of coming to knowledge of the world and forming their worldview, if you go after it, if you challenge it, they're going to feel personally challenged. And there is an emotional response that, that comes from that that I think gets in the way of, of dialogue. Well, I, I, I I guess that as to the process though,
0: a, a process should not necessarily be religion. And often the conclusion is right the conclusion is I think ends up being religion this is my firmly held belief I think the problem happens in religion the process becomes the conclusion and they get conflated where you know this is the the, the, the one true way to get the answer and so in deviating from that you're deviating from you know the the the, the approved dogma and so that is when the when the when the when the when, the, when yeah. When the process is the religion and if there is an emotional reaction, then I say there's a problem with the process and then we ought not be engaging in the process because then that, now it's religion. So what's the hope of changing the process? Cause that's ultimately what you're saying. I, I mean, I think of, um, you know, the conversations with, with religious is, or with religious people is, you know, my approach is this and that highlights, it's a different process but it's a shift. And I'm not saying what your process should be. We're disagreeing in our approach. We may, we may end up um, agreeing about our conclusions. Maybe not. But now we know why, because our approaches are different. So, so I, I, I struggle with, well, let's challenge a process that only makes sense if the process is one that is built to be open to any sort of adjustment. But the religious one is not, but or I should say many religious ones are not. There are religious ones where that is part of the process. I, I think specifically about the uh, uh the, the Amish that say part of the process is go ex- go be exposed to this, not be shielded rumspringa. from That's the rumspringa, a very yeah. different process. Sure. Religious process that that could, could be you know quarreled with, depending on anyway. So so it's 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 again the we getting in the specifics of what is that. Process because for some people, their process should be um, well, I pray to God. Okay, well, now we can have a conversation about that process um, and the and again, the application.
1: And so, so no, but when we're talking about processes, my... Matt, I, I mean, I, th- I think we need to be careful that, that the types of processes that are under discussion here are those process, the, those epistemological processes, those processes that bring someone to an understanding of, of the world. And so are you saying that anybody's process for bringing them to an understanding is okay with you as long as the conclusion is sound? No, I'm saying their process is irrelevant to
0: me until and unless their conclusion is something that impacts me in some way. And I think Mm -hmm. part of the conflict that happens too often is that we care too much, too often, about the processes and the the processes regardless of the conclusion – and often the conclusion, regardless of whether or not the conclusion affects us. And in doing that, we create our own religion because at some point what we're really, is we're waiting for even the most minor thing to say, that's not how life is done. This is how life is done. That's, mm. that's what I'm saying.
3: Okay, I love that. Uh, my, my social anthropology, the kind of the take on this, is way different. <laughs> we're going to take a, like a, a 180, is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, only because I don't think what we're talking about is ideas. And I, I loved philosophy, but I had to leave and go into anthropology because I just felt like it was so devoid of the human part of us that we can, it's kind of the Steven Pinker mentality that there's some ghost in the machine. Our head is separate than our body. You know, thoughts can be um, taken out of a context and, and seen in a vacuum. And what I think people are assuming is that you can separate a person from their ideas. And I and I don't think you can. If someone's ideas are critiqued, you feel bad. To me, as an anthropologist, it's emotion is inherently connected with ideas because you feel emotion it's an evolutionary warning system to your body to either help you do pro-social things or avoid right. antisocial things. Yeah. So in my mind, when we're in a conversation and we have two conflicting perspectives, what we're doing is a modern-day dominance competition. We're just animals right. and we're trying to see who yeah. dominate. And either yeah. one will walk out and win, and now dad's the dad and we can all live together and be happy. <laughs> and you're right, dad, you're right. Mormonism's great. No one. Or guess what? We fight and I win and he follows me or guess we go our separate ways. That has always been how a status competition happens and ends. One will win or you go your separate ways and how look at all of our status competitions we've had with family, friends, since we've all left the church, that's kind of how it is. And, but we all have that other thing. And I think this is the meat we're trying to get to the application. Why are we even talking about this? Can it do some good in the world is I have friends who got married at 19 still live in rigby idaho you know have raised their kids are super mormon that still are so kind to me so our epistemological worldviews you know completely are opposite we went our separate ways we live these separate lives
1: are, are you yeah. trying to say without saying they haven't gone to college they have you know they're they're kind of in the same place that they were before try to to tiptoe around that yes. but that's kind of what you mean
3: well, because I because I would feel like that is a um, valuation on right. what I value, and right, that's putting right, right. her in a place. She might not value that stuff. She values right. being a part of a small town community and helping out a PTA. Right. I don't that, and people could look down on me for that, right? So I don't really want to critique. I I I, 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 I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Right. But I want to say it. There are dominance competitions where one has to win, and you're never going to be happy. And that's why I love what Matt just said is but why do you care so much? If that's not the world or the nest you want to rule or the religion you want to found, why do you care if that guy does, right? Unless it affects your life. And so I think it's just these, these status competitions and you decide, do I, if I, do I care enough about your perspective to agree with you and follow you? Or am I going to say, no, you're wrong and affect that relationship?
0: I like everything she said. I agree with Chelsea. Good job. Um, uh, Why, why do we do that when it doesn't matter? I think, I think I have a suggestion I want to play with that almost a spin on your dominance play and the status that, that I think that's true, but it comes from such a place of insecurities that when we see someone doing something different, it becomes shit. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. So instead of critically and fairly and honestly evaluating your own approach to see if you are meeting your needs in an authentic and a health and wellness filled way, instead we say, let's just attack that person because they're not doing what I'm doing. I'm not uncomfortable uncomfort- and other people are doing different things than me, especially in areas on which I feel strongly about and are meaningful to me. So that must be wrong that's that status dominance play that ultimately we just don't know what the fuck we're doing and we think (laughs) are afraid that maybe other people do and that frightens us perhaps more than anything else so the response is to you should do what i'm doing because it really makes me feel better or i don't know what i'm doing. And I see some people over here, I'll just start doing what they're doing. And then I'll be safer, protected and feel better about myself, even if it is not quite right for me. I'll just quiet that I'll put that on the shelf. Because this is better than that angst that I had of feeling alone and doing this differently. I was thinking about some of our conversations that we have, how stupid they are. And I was listening to one the other day, uh, a friend of mine, sits on the you know was sitting on the ground other person they started just kind of talking about why they sit the different ways that they do and I thought this is a fascinating fucking conversation I couldn't care less about other one I'm glad they're taking care of their body in what whichever way is is comfortable but what I was picking up on was it was it was really this it felt like this jealousy of, oh, I can't, I can't sit that way or I don't sit way this way. So now I need to justify the way that I move my body. And then there becomes this conversation of really justifying our existence with each other. This is why I do what I do. Please accept it or adopt it. One of them, please one of them, about the things that don't even matter. <laughs> and, I, and, and consider the ways that we do that in justifying our behaviors to ourselves ultimately. And looking for that validation because we can't give it to ourselves because we're really not comfortable in how we're moving our own selves. And that's sad.
3: So I I actually agree with everything you said about the status, but I don't think it's, I think there's a little positivity here because what we're also doing when we're saying, no, new idea, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, is we're also trying to say, hey, I know this culture. I have an amount of knowledge. And if you do these things, you're not going to fit here. And I remember being super LDS and getting converts, you know, and kind of teaching them about our culture and kind of, um, cousins or people in my life that I now regret very much kind of ushering in a kind way, persuading them to kind of toe the line basically, but in, in the nicest way I could. And it wasn't necessarily that I was insecure and didn't believe I knew that I was right. That's why I was like, you, if you don't follow me, if you don't follow this way, right? Like this guy we watched just now, right? We listened to him talk to all these people. If you don't follow my way, you're going to be led astray. And so there is this like boundary making group kind of that that people do have a little bit of responsibility over. And then there's another thing. Let's not look at it in that way. I think we all have like PTSD over that. Of, of knowledge bases. So if you are a mentor to people in your field, let's say you're a designer, let's say you're a, you know, a lawyer or whatever, and you see someone that's starting to break boundaries in your field and you're like, crap, don't do that. You're going to get disbarred. Or, or, or a journalist. I had a great talk with a journalist the other day and he's had to teach these young millennials of like, no. Journalism is not fake news. You have to fact check if if it really was overcast and if it says overcast. We fact check everything, and that is a that is the only way we can not be fake news. And so he had to like bring these people into these boundaries, even if it meant shaming or and I it's it's just the way we interact with each other. And I think sometimes listening to these earlier clips, I, I think people sometimes forget we're a head attached to a body. Like we can't just think and have ideas. We're always in a social interplay in some way or another, and something is driving our behavior. And it's not always the truth, intellectual vacuum. Sometimes it's, oh man, don't step aside. You're not going to get, you know, your degree. Oh man, you're not going to get married. Like we're always have these different drives of why we're convincing people to do things.
1: What, what, what you said made me think of what one of the clips coming up, which I might just fast forward to, cause it's taken us a while to get through these, but, um, where, where Jonathan Haidt talks about, Oh no, 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 It's fine with me. Um, where, uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about the, um, the, the reason, you know, the, the thinking that we do in our heads, is that something that, um, precedes the emotion that we feel or does it come after we feel the Emotion? And is it something when, whenever we're in some kind of a situation where, whether um, we're having to make a judgment on a cultural thing, a moral thing, or a, an epistemological decision, um, is it only our rationality that is able to make that decision or is it? Primarily the emotion. You know
3: the clip where he's like kind of talking about cultural relativism?
1: And the avocado. He he gives the avocado example.
3: It wasn't the next one. I can't remember which one, but he actually, he says cultural relativism means you have the, uh, it's impossible to know another culture. And that's just completely wrong. That's like the, the wrong definition.
7: This current manifestation of liberalism is a skeleton of former incarnations and is best described not by what it is, but by the parasitic ideologies that have given that skeleton its corrupted form. Relativism, subjectivity, tolerance, diversity, multiculturalism, respect for difference, and inclusion. These invasive values betray classical and social liberalism's history of standing for basic freedoms and fighting all forms of tyranny. Tolerance is another liberal value. And by the same line of thinking has been perverted into another value that undermines reason. Tolerance only works when there's reciprocity. That is, tolerance doesn't handle intolerance very well. When tolerance and the protection offered by toleration are extended from people and can't leave it out to ideas, we end up protecting intolerance, anti-science views, irrationality, and all other forms of rank bias. Many societies that enshrine faith-based processes are truly, profoundly intolerant. Intolerant of homosexuals, intolerant of women's rights, intolerant of minority rights, intolerant of other faith traditions, intolerant of freedom of speech, intolerant of freedom of assembly, intolerant of freedom of religion, etc. Leftism and the values I've just discussed that piggyback on it have extended the value of tolerance to social, cultural, and epistemic practices.
1: W- was that the one that you were thinking of, Chelsea, or is it one after that?
3: It's the one after that.
1: Okay. Um, you know, I, I think the, the the reason that I picked that clip is because the first time I heard it, it sounded like he was really attacking these ideals like tolerance and respect and inclusion and multiculturalism. Like, you might as well be like a white supremacist. It just sounded like, it sounded really, really horrible to me.
6: Beware of the tolerance trap. Right. I know some general authority said that.
1: Yeah. You hear that in church too, where they're like, be, be, beware of too much tolerance. Yeah. Um, but, but, but again, when, when, when I put this back into the very narrow focus of, um, epistemological relativism, then I'm like, okay, I think what he's saying is that these liberal values came in and infected <laughs> the, the uh, epistemological relativism. But I don't, I don't know really what to do with it. It just, it, it makes me uncomfortable to say I'm not on the side of tolerance.
6: It makes me think of the international hijab day, and there's this big campaign and all these hashtags with women wearing their hijab. But then there were also, um, a flood of women taking them off and burning them and saying, this is not something that I want to parade around as my freedom to wear this. I want to take it off and burn it is, you know, symbolism of me being more free without it. So yeah, it's a fine line. It's like, you're you're tolerating a culture but if that culture harbors uh holds other people down then it's tricky you have to navigate it very trickily
1: yeah the 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 other reaction i had as i was listening to that was when he talks about uh, tolerance needs reciprocation to be effective i i don't know this is another one of those things that he says as if it's a fact but i don't Like, is, is, are there studies to demonstrate that? Like, it it just doesn't, that doesn't seem right. And it, it it does seem like it's one of those things that, that maybe in a narrow context, if you define the context that it would be right, but to have it be generally true, doesn't make a lot of sense. And it, and it makes me think about conversations that I've had with other former Mormons who, um, uh, they they don't want to give their Mormon relatives the benefit of the doubt on something because they know that their Mormon relatives wouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt on it. And they're like, they're, it's not going to be reciprocated. My tolerance of them isn't going to be reciprocated. So I'm just not going to be you yeah. know, kind or respectful or things like that. And, and that may be why I'm kind of having that reaction as well. I I, I, yeah, I think I, it's kind of irrelevant how somebody responds to you, if you're going to be tolerant or, <laughs> or not.
6: Right. I mean, I, I agree with him. I don't think any idea should be so sacred that it's not that above criticism Right. That or
1: discussion. Be, yeah,
6: exactly. For sure. Um, however, I think of like new name Noah and he, he puts these temple videos out. I don't know how effective that is in uh
1: yeah, now you have to kind of ask yourself: <laughs> he put, What's the purpose of that? Was was he trying to?
6: Has he put any videos out recently? Uh, I don't know. I know. I just know. You know. I just know what he does. I don't know how effective that is at proving the church isn't true. I think it just pisses right. members off and yeah. makes people who already don't understand that that uh, tradition think even more. Oh gosh, those Mormons are so weird. Like, I don't. I, I support them because I think everything should be criticized. I, you know, nobody should be killed because they are drawing Allah or whatever, you know, but I also still have kind of a gut reaction to those temple videos because...
1: what you, A gut like, reaction, like, meaning it makes you feel uncomfortable?
6: kind of, or just like, I don't know, I guess, I guess there's a, there's, we're all all playing a different role in this post-Mormon world. It's just, what, what is his, his end game for doing that? And sometimes, some days I would be totally on board with it. And other times I'm like, yeah. it's, I don't know, it's never too far. Like I said, all, everything should be on the table for scrutiny, but
5: he would say his end game is, is educating people and informing them. And maybe that ties into the hijab example as well. How, at what point does consent start to play a role in this? I mean, if you, yeah. somebody can wear the hijab or wear garments or burn them, at what point are they consenting to do either of those things in either direction? And should that temper the way we approach how we deal with that particular
0: issue?
6: Right. That's, that's <laughs> with how that.
0: other people deal with their religion, yeah, I think well, we should temper ourselves in the way we <laughs> deal with how other people deal with their own spiritual practice. So,
4: here, can, can I ask you,
0: Delaney? Can I go back to something you said? I wanted to. Oh, yeah. I was really. Well, you are really close to something I, I wanted to hear, but you said something about these roles we play, these these new roles or different roles as in, in the ex Mormon world. Mm-hmm. I wanted to hear what what that. Um, these roles that you're, that you're talking about and what those look like. And
6: I just mean some people are more in your face about it. And other people are, I don't know, trying to build bridges, um, trying to meet halfway. We, I don't necessarily want to be, well, maybe I'll explain it this way. Okay. So I, I live in West Virginia and I've gotten to meet a lot of different people that I would not have been exposed to had I still lived in Utah. So I have some Jewish friends, some Baptist friends, some Christian friends, some, a little bit of everybody here. And um, it was a relief not being a member anymore to just kind of take whatever they're into and accept them for who they are and, and put our differences, like it's, it's not even an issue, you know, that's their thing. It's not my thing, but whatever. We're still friends. Why wouldn't I apply that same point of view to members of the church? It's just one other religion. It's just one other culture or faith tradition because I came from it. Yeah. It's triggering. And yeah, I don't agree with a lot of stuff, but
1: well, I think Jeremy Goff answered that question in that very first video that we watched, Delaney. It's because you broke covenants. I
6: did, and I don't so it's
1: impossible I for you to come back and see <laughs> value, and because you're just fighting against
6: God. My light is gone.
0: <laughs> Man, I love what you just said, and and it just resonates so much with something that's been in my mind lately about roles and about my roles, and and the the connection of roles to rules. And in order to maintain my role, I have to follow certain rules. And usually those rules were developed by somebody else. And if we're talking about roles of the xmore community, then who are setting the rules?
6: It's are we? Whatever, I don't know. It's it's just a thing. It's something somebody will write a book about in 50 years, about the I agree. Anthropology of the big exodus. I'm
0: saying something a little different, which is, if we stop following other people's rules and stop following the roles that we play in ex Mormonism, then we're able to treat those people the way that is authentic, the way you would treat other religious people with the same
1: shit that Mormons have. Right. The, the, the problem is, Matt, if, if you ignore the roles and you stop following the rules, then very quickly you're going to go off the rails. <laughs> in what way? Clever. In what way? <laughs>
6: See, I think it goes back.
3: No, to I, I, I'm again. saying
0: what I'm saying is, ex Mormons stop following other people's rules. Stop yeah. following your rules. I think treat we Mormons are Mormons and other people. We, we are we? I are,
3: are we? we? Yes. The reason Kate Kelly took a different path than me was not that we didn't have the exact same epistemological view. We did. It was because she has a personality that cannot be more opposite of mine. I'm
0: so you happy know? you brought up that example. That so think
3: about so it, so though. Happy. But think about it, like, and and we're still friends. But like.
5: Her personality
3: will do things that my personality would sooner die, right? And I think vice versa probably in her perspective. And it's not because we don't see the viewpoint the same way. And I love what Delaney said is I always said, heck, I wish there were more radical people out there because they push that cultural boundary and allow those middle ground people to be seen as normalized. It's all a part of that cultural shift and that cultural change. But I think it's more rooted which route we take, kind of the conclusion of this process that you were talking about, Matt, I think it's, it comes down more to personality and ontogeny and how you were raised and whether you're happy in life. I mean, really, it changes how you approach it.
1: All right. I'm going to go to the next clip. This, this may be the one that had the thing you wanted to respond to
7: in it, Chelsea. The basic idea behind cultural relativism is that because everyone is always judging a culture from their own particular situated cultural viewpoint, it's therefore impossible To make reliable judgments about other cultures and cultural practices. This means that cultures and cultural practices cannot be judged. For example, people in Brazil eat avocados with sugar and with sweet foods like avocado smoothies and in the United States we eat avocados with salt and with salty foods like guacamole. These are cultural practices and thus neither correct nor incorrect. The alleged inability to make reliable judgments about cultural practices has been illegitimately translated into a moral value. That is, the shift has been made from we cannot make judgments about cultural practices to we should not make judgments about cultural practices. Notice the spurious move here from the impossibility of a rational critique of a cultural preference to the immorality of making a judgment about a cultural preference.
6: I remember what I was going to say before we move on. Um, You talked about, uh, with Bill Real in a previous episode, Mm -hmm. about um, how the podcast downloads have gone down And I was thinking about that and there's so much more post-Mormon content out there now because I think there's just a bigger spectrum of people who have left the church that are into different things. And there isn't just the Mormon stories role or people aren't getting their perspective just from Jondolin anymore or just from um, Infants on Thrones. You know, there's so much ex-Mormon content out there that people can kind of find their niche now, which is nice. It's not as, well, if you hang out on Reddit too long, then it starts to get a little, a little bubbly. That
0: was nice because everyone can develop the right role and develop their own sub-tribal rules within the broader tribal tribe of (laughs) ex-Mormonism. So we can continue to really ratchet down and have the one true way to do ex-Mormonism. And eventually in 20 years, <laughs> I don't know know not sunstone,
6: I, love sunstone,
0: I have a bit, I have a bit I'm doing in 20 years, there will be many ways to ex-Mormon. You have the Dillonites over here and the, it's yeah, that's what we're doing. This is a very small application of the same goddamn thing that we've been doing in Mormonism and we're calling it different.
1: What do you mean by that?
0: Our roles are the same. We're doing the same. <laughs> we're, we're we are we are playing out our roles in the same dramas that are causing the same dis, that have the same dysfunctional relationships, causing the same traumas to ourselves and other people. We're calling it different because it has just slightly different expressions, but we're still not meeting our needs, and we're not finding peace through ex Mormonism because we're doing the same things because it wasn't the church that was causing it. And it wasn't that application. It was our fucking minds.
1: What, what are the roles? What are some of the roles?
0: Oh, well, tribalism is a good one. Religion, right? So moral relativism, charity, here is the right way to do charity. And it's not that Mormon church. And I care a whole lot. I'm not paying my tithing, but I care a whole lot how you do charity because here's the one true way to do charity. Right? That's, one one way we're doing it. It's, there's always looking at what other people are doing and saying. You're doing it wrong. This is the one true way. It's what homeboy Jeffrey, whatever
1: Jeremy, you know, Goff. Look,
0: I, yeah. I was barely listening. That was I couldn't. His energy yeah. just sucks. But you know when he, when he's talking about um, when he's talking about um, you know you are telling the church what to do. He, Sam is right, and, and ordained woman what women were, and. John DeLynn does has yeah and has yeah right so so that that is what it is it's at some point coming back and now looking at another group you're not a part of and saying this is how you should live life but I came from it and it affects me because my family and I still you guys do this to me so I get to but at some level it's simply you looking at another person and saying this is how you do life well it, how are
6: you supposed to advocate for anyone who is being traumatized by some system, I mean, take not just the church, but like the, the first people to push back on racist America, <laughs> like how do you push back on dogma? You can't always just say, let's all just live and let live because there but are people not people who suffer that.
0: That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we pick, Critic- yeah, I, think, I think we criticize it, we do it, but we should be living differently. And we should be living more healthily. And the question all I have is, is are we? In whatever situation we're in, but particularly when you're talking about a life approach, and a, a, yeah, this, we're essentially a cultural approach to living. The question is, is are we living in a way that's healthy? That's healthy for us? We well, as body, mind, and spirit, 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 Right. Uh, yes we know we as people and whatever that approach is and this is what i'm saying step back because mormonism and ex-mormonism is not unique we think it is we act like it is what i'm saying is that approach bringing us health is it bringing us happiness whatever that means is is it meeting our needs i'm suggesting that more ex-mormonism isn't and part of the conflict that we have is because we are engaged in the same dysfunctions in ex-Mormonism because the dysfunctions that were created in Mormonism didn't go away with the church. They permeated us and they're manifested here. And in many ways they're manifested in even a more unhealthy approach because now we're adopting these very dangerous behaviors in some cases that we really don't, we we aren't culturally built for because we didn't, we weren't born into that, this culture.
6: Yeah, no, I agree with you. I see what you're saying. Um, Alcoholism comes to mind I just bad I
0: conversations, oversharing, yeah, bo- boundary yeah. issues, not being able to to to, to you know f- f- feeling obligated the same way we did with Mormonism because uh, you you know, for those same uh, those yeah. same those same connections that really aren't real connections, but the only connections are that we're ex-Mormon. So consider that. How many associations oh,
6: yeah, I've been there. and
0: interactions do you have with people simply because they're ex-Mormon? How many other relationships do you have? Outside, you know, of other interests or other things you think about, do based on things you don't have an affiliation to anymore. It's an absurd process if you think about it, but we do it. That's the dysfunction. That's the lack of intimacy. That's the lack of connection. This method for living life is the same—an application of the same dysfunction that we had nothing to do with. It was brought up in us. Yeah. And I'm saying, look at the dysfunction instead. Look at the way we we interact interpersonally. Look at the way we interact with our spouses more than anything else. Perhaps
6: mm-hmm.
0: is ex-Mormonism at least. Are you seeing movement of continued health, wellness and peace are that chil- Are your, are your kids and your other associations Are your, are those connections ones that are feeding or does it feel that there's constant just, just angst and why? I'm saying we're not looking at the the symptom of what Mormonism caused because we're so caught up in the separation from the institution. And so we continue in these same rules or or roles because that's all we know. That's all we know. There's a phenomenon on Reddit particularly that once you stop describing yourself
5: as ex-Mormon, you start describing yourself as post-Mormon. But it's still symptomatic of the same thing you're saying until you're describing yourself as what you are instead of what you aren't anymore, that seems like it would continue to pervade. And maybe that's a way to tell if you're on an upward
0: slope, you're starting to describe yourself as something other than that. Well, and once you you describe yourself as something other than just Peter or Matt, you may just be in another tribe. What if you
2: describe yourself as awesome. Well, that only worked for you, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and handsome. <laughs>
0: yeah. I
6: don't I don't take issue with what you're saying. I don't disagree. I'm just I
0: but it hurts, right? There's something about it that just feels uncomfortable.
6: Well, no, it's more like I guess all those things that I agree with you about the ex-Mormon community, post-Mormon community. Um Maybe I need to reflect on my life more, but I feel like not everybody who has left the church falls under that umbrella and is, is healthier. I hope so. So can you, you, can you say you're an ex Mormon without people assuming that you're an alcoholic, that you share too much, that you don't, you know, have right boundaries do you have to assimilate that baggage because you are an ex-Mormon?
0: Well, once you just talk about assimilating baggage, then I think you've got baggage that needs to be put away and you're in the same dysfunction that's going on. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm not suggesting this is a monolith and I'm not suggesting this is 100% on anything I said, just like, as I said, as, of the dominance piece. I'm not saying every single person reacts that way because they're um, they're, they're insecure. I'm saying there is a large a large enough people where that will resonate with and that is a motivator and i think an awareness of that is important similarly here we've we, the, the the issue is real to many people to those who it's not something that i told the missionaries that came by they said i hope that whatever your approach is if mormonism is the right approach to, to health and wellness then i want you to, to to continue on that path but i hope it's the path that is right for you because it's right for you not because it's the only tribe you've ever known and I say the same thing to ex-Mormons. If truly this path of ex-Mormonism is bringing you that health, wellness, and peace, continue on that path, because only you can decide what that path is for you. But are you on this path simply because it's the only other tribe you've ever known, and that the alternative is too frightening? Consider that option, because when we're in water, water's wet. And if that's all you've known, how do you know that you're wet or dry? You're always wet. So I say, spend some time and seeing is whatever environment I'm in, is that the environment that is particularly healthy to Matt? Does Matt, is Matt able to be the true version of Matt because of this environment? And is Matt able to give a real and authentic expressions of love to the people that he loves In this environment, or is there something about this environment that forces Matt to feel that he can't be vulnerable and authentic to certain people and therefore not be the true self? If that's the case, I suggest adjust the environment somewhat. And I'm saying we don't spend time thinking in that because we're spending so much time worrying about the other side and where they decide to give charity and how they decide to give charity and other things that in criticizing the church on principles, I think we are evaluating our own values and it's fair and it's good. And it's healthy to do that to the extent that there's application inward. But too often the criticism of the church only results in a requested application for an external response. (laughs) And I'm saying do the other. Because you have the ability to affect change within yourself and adjust your environment more than you do in affecting change
2: externally. All right. So let me, let me, I'm going to try to pull my head out of the water for a minute. So, so we all have blind spots, right? Whether we were believers or not. And then we try, and then when we become unbelievers, we still got blind spots. They're just different, right? Right and other people still have blind spots and sometimes we can see other people's blind spots maybe other people can see our blind spots and some of these blind spots are cultural uh religious based or you know stuff that came from our childhood whatever they are right so isn't like the bigger broader picture that i even think that uh, peter Bohorgian... <laughs> i think I, I think if we just keep butchering his last name that'll be good but um isn't the broader picture that we're just trying to find ways effectively to reach other people with blind spots. Like if we see someone with a blind spot, isn't one of our, I don't know, uh, things that we should be wanting to do is reach roles, them? roles. <laughs> one of our roles is to reach them and say, Hey, I don't know if you know this, but you're not seeing this. And I'm seeing this, this, I'm seeing that you're missing seeing this, <laughs> <laughs> well, I so I'm going to we had a very serendipitous
0: weekend where um my wife and I had an, had a a good uh, coming together and kind of resolving kind of working on some some issues in, in our relationship as we try to work on them regularly. Um and our son um ended up bra- ending a, a his first relationship he's in college and his boyfriend um broke up with him and we were we had to receive him with in, in a state of grief and pain. And it was unique for us as 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 parents of adult children now kind of dealing with adult issues and adult motion, emotions. And we see his blind spots. And rather than talking to him about the blind spots, instead all we could say is, We love you, it hurts, we know, and we and we loved on him. And we just built him up and talked about all the the good qualities, knowing the blind spot that we knew is in this moment, he is as insecure and as crushed and as broken as he'll ever be. All he sees is all the negatives and why he he doesn't deserve love and why he will never find love. That's the blind spot that he he doesn't have, that I have, knowing that and knowing that's not real. So rather than giving him the perspective understanding that, It was, son, the only thing you need to know is that I love you and that this is who you are really because right now you are creating a fiction of yourself. And I gave him the reality of how I see him because I wanted him to see him the way I see him, not the way he sees himself in that moment. So that was a way, I think, of identifying the blind spot and letting him come to the conclusion on his own because this is a process, this is a moment. That he's, that will change and it will adjust, and hopefully that's the way we approach the blind spot in that specific situation. Right, and there's and there's so many other situations. Or I could say, now, Tommy, you got to understand, I've lived a long time, I've seen some shit, bro. Let me tell you how life works. Suck it up. Everybody has a bad relationship. You're gonna get over it. You're gonna have another one. Let me tell you how it is, man, because I'm your father. I've seen it. That's what we do in trying to reveal blind spots. And in doing that, we demonstrate our own blind spots because we don't have their perspective. But perhaps we have a particular shared perspective of feeling like nobody will love us ever again for a day or a month or sometimes for a lifetime. That's the blind spot in seeing in other people. So that we can help them see that blind spot in the, that blind spot in themselves, so we can see it in ourselves when it happens to us.
1: Are we done with the clips, Glenn? No, I, I mean we could, we can be. Um, I, I'm I'm trying to think of a way to to bring it back to cultural relativism.
2: <laughs> I mean, yeah, just take that hard right turn, probably. That's uh,
0: all cultural relativism. i just blowing this thing up. Am on a different, just a different path than anyone
2: else, huh? <laughs> I don't know about that. I, th- I, th- I think you're bringing uh, some pretty heavy stuff in, at least for me. Well, maybe we should stop fucking talking around the issue
0: and talk about the issue. And that's a goddamn problem with Boghossian. Every time I heard his clip, I'm what the fuck are you talking about? What? I can say something, man. Let's talk about the issues, not around the issues. You don't think he's talking about the issues? No, because I think, again, if we have to get in very clear specifics and very conversations with very specific people. Because one of the problems that he's talking about relativism is all these data points. Before we talk about how to have this approach, I better know who that person is across from me, what their experience is, what are the complexities in their life, what are the things in the moment that they're dealing with right now today? Did they just not sleep? Did they just have one of the worst blow-ups with their kid? Is their kid suicidal? We act as if people, how about this? We have yet to deal with the, interact with the real people that we interact with. They're all fictions in our heads because we don't take a minute to find out and we'll never know what are all those factors. So I'm staying with Boghossian. It's an uninteresting conversation to have. And it's like saying, do you believe in God? It's a stupid conversation because before you start bridging these, these gaps, we have to hit these variables and get in specifics. And that's where I find this. That's why I keep stepping out because I don't know how to apply it the way that Boghossian presenting it. What I know is the way that I've dealt with it over the course of the last 10 years. And each conversation is uniquely different because of all those variables as to who the person is, what the, all all those things that come in. That's what I'm
3: saying. I completely agree. I think that um, what he's fundamentally missing, and I'm sure he's going to think who's this chick like telling me I'm wrong. (laughs) You know, maybe that's overstepping with some hubris, but I think his major flaw in his entire argument is that relativism relativism can get be pulled out of context and that's just impossible and impossible. I mean, Einstein's theory of relativity, it's the you know the way we learned about it in school. You know, there's a guy on a train and a guy on a platform, a light gets put on. To the guy on the train, all, all the lights came out at the same time. To the guy on the platform, because of time, speed, light, right? It looks like it comes off at different times. So where you are standing. De- determines the truth or the reality of that experience. And that's how Einstein always meant the theory of relativity. Now Franz Boas who came up with cultural relativity, he didn't coin it but he was kind of the first one to start talking about it. Um, sorry we got a chat. <laughs> um so let's let me rephrase that state sorry sorry Glenn. So Einstein always meant for Relativism to have a context, to have a point of view, to have a, a, p- a place, a stake in the ground. And that's how Boas with cultural relativism also believed. So it's not the impossibility or the implausibility of understanding another culture per se, it's that what culture you're in determines the, the applications, the conclusions, the rightness, the morality, the value system, whether it's good or bad. Um, one of my favorite 101 examples, and I told you, Glenn, I was going to show you this little book called Morality uh, and Moral Controversies, uh, Readings in Moral, Social, and Political Philosophy. And I always have my students read this one chapter because it just struck a chord with me as a young Mormon girl. And it's about one culture who burns their dead and one culture who eats a piece of their dead to really take it upon themselves and the first time I read that, I thought, "Oh my god, how gross! How could you like eat a dead person?" Right. And the whole, the entire dialogue, the whole um, article is weighing like how strange it is to think about eating someone that's dead, and then the the same culture being thrust into the other, thinking how how why would you, why would you burn, turn to trash this, the most valuable thing of the last, you know, the last moment I will ever have with this person, I want it to become a part of me. And then I realized, Oh my gosh, in my religion, we're the people who hate Christ. We believe in taking him upon us. Right. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm in that culture. We're really thinking about epistemological lineages. And it really, you know, and it gets my students to understand that burning or eating the flesh of your dead are only right or wrong if you step outside the context, right. And I think that's what he's fundamentally missing. And in cultural relativism, I mean, can we all agree that avocado example was super dumb?
1: Yeah. Really dumb.
3: Come on. Like it didn't even, it wasn't even culture. Anyway. Do do you
1: want to go through some case studies? Because, you know, like this case study that you have that, that you gave here of like the, the eating, the burning, the dead, Jonathan Haidt, proposes some of these these are our next set of clips if you want to play some and see where we go with the conversation
3: i would love to i think i only had one last thing cultural relativism is just the idea because everything is in context it it was not that you can't understand another culture it's that you can only judge someone's behavior within the context of that culture and
1: all of the multiple variables yes say that that again i that was
0: there was some there was a there's a lot there you had a you have a really good uh You're hitting something deep with just a, with the line. I want to hear that again.
3: And this is, and just so that we're all aware, because people don't really know about anthropology. They don't really think we're that important, but this is, how we fundamentally we have to take ethical codes we can get disbarred basically we can be kicked out of anthropology if we do not approach culture the right way we take it very seriously and the definition of cultural relativism for us for anthropologists who this is our whole profession is that you cannot judge someone outside of the context of their culture however Within one's own culture, you can determine and judge behavior, and that's how each culture has created a series of laws and, you know, systems of, of morality. And so it's that mixing of context, that taking out of context, that we, that I just fundamentally think he's he's mistaken.
0: I gotta play. I gotta spend some time with that. So thank you for that, Chelsea.
3: Yeah.
0: Is there a difference between judging someone or
5: something like an individual point within a culture versus? Judging a culture? Are those different things?
3: I think so. What do you guys think?
1: Well, yeah, they're, 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 they're different things. Yeah. And, and I, I think that goes back to one of the clips. One of the points that he made earlier that criticizing processes or systems is different than criticizing people or groups. Is that what you're asking, Peter?
5: Yeah. The idea that we can say somebody who does some, some certain behavior in a certain culture is morally reprehensible, but we find out later that they were coerced into it. So we can judge the idea that this is, it's bad to coerce somebody to do something that's immoral, but we can't necessarily judge a person who did a thing that was bad because they were coerced into it. Does that make sense?
3: Makes sense to me, but Mm -hmm. I also think you can judge an idea, you can judge a culture, but you can also judge a person, and I think those are three separate ideas. Um, However, I don't think you can ever judge an idea outside of the context of that person. So, if we really get into ontogeny, epigenetics, connectomics, how our brains work, what we're born with, what our life you know imprints on the plasticity of our brain, even. Even a passionate if you truly believe an idea and someone critiques it, I do not believe you can separate idea from person because what has constructed that mindset and the passion behind an idea and that belief, if you will, not just a, a tangential idea like the earth is round, but maybe something you fundamentally believe in and have passion around, that's built for a reason. You've built that emotion around that for a reason so you can't critique that without that, that pain coming back upon you, I don't
1: mm-hmm. think. Yeah, I agree with that. Let, let, let's listen to this next um, series of examples and, and see where the discussion takes us. And then, I mean, I know we've been doing this for two hours. So if anybody at any point feels like, I'm done, we've got to jump off, we can do that. Um, but, I'm, but I'm curious to see your responses to this.
4: I'm going to tell you a brief story. Pause after you hear it and decide whether the people in the story did anything morally wrong. A family's dog was killed by a car in front of their house. They had heard that dog meat was delicious, so they cut up the dog's body and cooked it and ate it for dinner. Nobody saw them do this. All right. Tom, was it wrong?
3: <laughs> Morally or culturally?
1: Any, any, in any way was what happened wrong. Or, or, or maybe, Chelsea, you could talk about what questions would we need to, to ask? What, what context would we have to surround ourselves with in order to, to determine if it was wrong or not?
3: So, I would, need to know, so moral, I would need to know if they're in Wisconsin or Southeast Asia. And if I knew the difference between that, it would determine whether people in their neighborhood would think that it's wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: What about just you as a, a, an observer thinking that it's morally wrong for you?
3: Um, no, because we we live in a society where we believe that cutting up and eating animals is acceptable. If we, so, so I don't see a difference between a cow and a, and a dog and a horse, I mean, and a monkey and a rat. I live in Ghana. We ate rat, grass cutter, which is a large rat. So really what you think is gross is completely culturally dependent. Mm-hmm. Morally, it depends on if you believe animals suffer and die. And if you believe they suffer and die, then, then yeah, that you murdered something. It just happened to be a different species.
1: No, it got hit by a car.
3: Oh, then yeah. Eat it. Why not?
1: What do
2: you think, Tom? Yeah, I'm with Chelsea. No, no big deal? No big deal. Matt? What? Can I eat an animal? No. I mean, do you
1: think that that example was that there was something morally wrong or is it all, it's all good? Or I, or is I, it just uninteresting?
0: I had to walk away for a minute. I
1: I only have one kidney, so I had to take a break. Okay. All right. Um, Let's, let's,
4: uh, Jonathan Haidt will explain his answer here. If you were like most of the well-educated people in my studies, you felt an initial flash of disgust, but you hesitated before saying the family had done anything morally wrong. After all, the dog was dead already, so they didn't hurt it, Right. And it was their dog, so they had a right to do what they wanted with the carcass, no? If I pushed you to make a judgment, odds you'd give me a nuanced answer. Something like, well, I think it's disgusting, and I think they should have just buried the dog, but I wouldn't say it was morally wrong. Okay, here's a more challenging story. A man goes to the supermarket once a week and buys a chicken. But before cooking the chicken, he has sexual intercourse with it. Then he cooks it and eats it. Can't touch
1: this. Can't touch this.
4: I want to start with Tom again.
2: As long as he's not doing it in front of anybody, <laughs> he's not like videotaping it and whatever. Like, if he's doing it in <laughs> confines of his own room, I guess I'm like, uh, tweets their own. I guess. All right, Matt. I, I don't have an opinion
1: on that. You don't have an opinion <laughs> on that if it's moral or not? I, d- I don't. Okay, Chelsea. Oh,
3: God. Um, is it dead or alive? I can't remember.
1: So it, it would make a difference if the chicken, a was, difference
3: really? the chicken was. It makes a total difference to Chicken rape. If it was dead or alive.
1: <laughs> you know, I, like,
0: I like these gradations. <laughs> yeah. Is it Chicken rape?
3: I told you I was going to answer these all wrong. <laughs> if the chicken's dead and he just has this weird sexual fetish, I'm with Tom. Like as long as he's not exposing anyone to it and it just gets him off, like whatever. I think it's gross, but like, who cares? If Fuck. the chicken's alive and there's no, there's all, no consent, that's the, my, own, my argument against bestiality. <laughs> how how
1: so would, would you determine consent, consent. consent from a chicken?
3: That's what I mean. It's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Therefore, I consider it rape. It's non-consensual sex. I don't care who it's with. It's, it's, it's rape, even if it's an animal. That animal has, feels pain. Yeah. So in Ar- in, Arizona, horrible. in Ar-
0: Arizona, it is illegal to have sex with a chicken. There was a case where <laughs> no, no, found- no No, 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 yeah. no, no. Stop,
3: stop.
2: But they didn't know what to do with the chicken, case. So they gave
0: it back to the guy.
2: I don't want to oh. hear about a case with this. Uh, that, the chicken uh, was alive.
0: Uh, man. The chicken was alive, and they gave it back to the guy. So I like to imagine the like gonzo's <laughs> oh. chickens just going. Uh, uh, you know what?
2: I I was supposed to sleep tonight. No, whatever. <laughs> it's off now.
0: Here, here's another fun fact in Arizona,
2: No, <laughs> fun fact. All right. Let let let's, gonna, let let uh,
0: uh, Jeff... Fisher are, fish are on the table. Fisher all good in Arizona. Just. That's the one Oh, come, dude,
4: come on. All right, move on. Jeez. All right. Once again, no harm, nobody else knows, and like the dog-eating family, it involves a kind of recycling that is, as some of my research subjects pointed out, an efficient use of natural resources. But now the disgust is so much stronger, and the action just seems so degrading. Does that make it wrong? If you're an educated and politically liberal Westerner, you'll probably give another nuanced answer, one that acknowledges the man's right to do what he wants, as long as he doesn't hurt anyone. But if you are not a liberal or libertarian Westerner, you probably think it's wrong, morally wrong, for someone to have sex with a chicken carcass and then eat it. For you, as for most people on the planet, morality is broad. Some actions are wrong, even though they don't hurt anyone. Understanding the simple fact that morality differs around the world, and even within societies, is the first step toward understanding your righteous mind. The next step is to understand where these many moralities came from in the first place.
2: All right, so you're not actually gonna play the incest example, are you? I, I
4: have it, cue up in the next one. <laughs> Julie and Mark, who are sister and brother, are traveling together in France. They are both on summer vacation from college. One night, they're staying alone in a cabin near the beach. They decide that it would be interesting and fun if they tried making love. At the very least, it would be a new experience for each of them. Julie is already taking birth control pills, but Mark uses a condom too, just to be safe. They both enjoy it, but they decide not to do it again. They keep that night as a special secret between them, which makes them feel even closer to each other. So what do you think about this? Was it wrong for them to have sex? In the other harmless taboo story, Jennifer works in a hospital pathology lab. She's a vegetarian for moral reasons. She thinks it's wrong to kill animals. But one night, she has to incinerate a fresh human cadaver, and she thinks it's a waste to throw away perfectly edible flesh. So she cuts off a piece of flesh and takes it home. Then she cooks it and eats it. We knew these stories were disgusting, and we expected that they'd trigger immediate moral condemnation. Only 20% of subjects said it was okay for Julie and Mark to have sex, and only 13% said it was okay for Jennifer to eat part of a cadaver. But when Scott asked people to explain their judgments and then challenged those judgments, he found exactly the Humean pattern that we had predicted. In these harmless taboo scenarios, people generated far more reasons and discarded far more reasons than in any of the other scenarios. They seemed to be flailing around, throwing out reason after reason, and rarely changing their minds when Scott proved that their latest reason was not relevant. Here's the transcript of one interview about the incest story. Experimenter. So what do you think about this? Was it wrong for Julie and Mark to have sex? Yeah, I think it's totally wrong to have sex. You know, because I'm pretty religious, and I just think incest is wrong anyway. But I don't know. What's wrong with incest, would you say? Um, the whole idea of, well, I've heard, I don't even know if this is true, but in the case, if the girl did get pregnant, the kids become deformed most of the time in cases like that. But they used a condom and birth control pills. Oh, okay, yeah, you, you did say that. So so there's no way they're going to have a kid. Well, I guess the safest sex is abstinence, but, um, uh, um, I, I don't know. I, I just think that's wrong. I don't know. What did you What did you ask me? Was it wrong for them to have sex? Yeah, I think it's wrong. And I'm trying to find out why, what you think is wrong with it. Okay, um, well, let's see. Let, let me think about this. Um, how old were they? They were college age, around 20 or so. Oh, oh, I don't know. I just... It's not something you're brought up to do. It's just not... Well, I mean, I wasn't. I assume most people aren't. Uh, I think that you shouldn't... I I don't... I guess my reason is um, just that uh, you're not brought up to do it. You you don't see it. It's not... um, I, I I don't think it's accepted. That's pretty much it. You wouldn't say that anything you're not brought up to see is wrong, would you? For example, if you're not brought up to see women working outside the home, would you say that makes it wrong for women to work? oh well oh gosh this is hard i really um i mean there's just no way i could change my mind but i just don't know how to how to show what i'm feeling what i feel about it it's it's crazy in this transcript and in many others it's obvious that people were making up a moral judgment immediately and emotionally reasoning was merely the servant of the passions and when the servant failed to find any good arguments the master did not change his mind we quantified some of the behaviors that seemed most indicative of being morally dumbfounded, and these analyses showed big differences between the way people responded to the harmless taboo scenarios compared to the Heinz Dilemma.
2: Uh, I don't know, man. Like, I, yeah, I've, I've read this book, and Sorry. I've heard this example used a couple times, and I, I don't know, man. That, push, that, that pushes me in all kinds of ugly areas. Well, but But why is that a bad thing, though? Because then you can definitely go, oh, yeah,
1: that's immoral.
2: Because it's not clear. It's not it's not ah, man, it's
1: yeah, whatever. What but but what it so what it illustrates though is to to me, and we, we talked about this earlier, is that you get an emotional response from hearing these stories and you make a judgment based on that emotional response. And and then you have to explain why. You give some reason and rationale why it's uh-huh. wrong.
2: Uh-huh. Okay. So I I think it ties in with
1: moral relativity and cultural relativity. I I don't know. I I wish, I wish the guy that had accused us of being moral relativists or cultural relativists or or whatever was on here. So, or he gave us some specific examples that we could respond to. Um, but I, but I, I think it's, um, I don't know. I don't don't even know how interested it is anymore.
3: (laughs) I say, can I give you a cultural example that is true to life? I might, might might've already told you this one, but that doesn't bring up so much triggering stuff. Um, so I was once working in the field. I was working with witch doctors, kind of learning how they heal, you know, traveling, living with them and kind of, live, you know, going to the shrine. And I got to know these these young girls who I found out had been accused of witchcraft. They were 13 and 14. And I won't give you their names or the village, but um, w- there's a practice where kind of parents give their kids to these healers to kind of get them better, to get the witchcraft out of them. But in the meantime, they're his slaves and and they've been sexually abused. And, you know, I really felt as an American woman, like very, like I need to protect these, these girls. And we were at a ceremony and part of the ceremony to kind of get the witchcraft out is he grabs a piece of tire, a rubber tire, and he's spinning around. And I've been to, at this point, hundreds of spirit possessions. So as even though I'm a young Mormon girl, I had become acclimatized, right? I had understand the culture enough of what's happening culturally at the moment but I had never seen this, this level of intensity. And he begins to beat the girls with this wire. And you could hear like, you know, the way rubber, you know, could hear the sound and see the welt, the instant. And they were crying with big tears in their eyes. And I, as the first time as an anthropologist was like, I can't, I can't, I need to stop it. It's it's like walking up in sacrament meeting in front of everyone. This is a ritual. I'm not a part of it. These are not my people. These are not my practices. But as a, American, I can't morally sit back and watch these girls. I know they're getting abused logically, but now I'm watching it physically. And just because these people believe in this thing, I believe girls should not be abused. Right. And I had this huge moral quandary and it's a really interesting story. I ended up just getting up and leaving. I just couldn't stand the beating. Right. But I felt like I couldn't, you know, take down the ceremony. So I just kind of got out and left. And that was kind of offensive, but not as offensive as it would have been if I stopped the ceremony. And then I met with these girls later and, and they said, I'll, I'll try to hurry it along, but they said, you know, come back next time and make sure they don't beat us. Cause I had come to the guy, the healer and said, Hey, you know, I felt sorry. I left early. I felt uncomfortable in my culture. You know, this is just not acceptable. He's like, well, this is why I'm doing it. He explained the ritual again and the witchcraft. I'm like, I get it. I get it. Logically. I wrote down all his, you know, explanatory models, but, but I still don't want to watch girls be beaten. And so he and I came to an agreement of when I am at the ceremony, he won't beat the girls, which I don't know. Is that moral? I don't know. So the next time I'm there, please stay. Please stay, Chelsea. He's going to beat me. So I start going to these ceremonies in order for him not to beat these girls. I don't know if that's moral, if I'm breaking some kind of anthropological code. And then the finale of this story is one time I'm there and their parents come. And these girls cannot go home to their parents unless it's proven that this witchcraft is out of them. And the same girls that begged me you know, two weeks ago to to stay, she now comes up to me and says, can you please leave? If you're, if you're here, he won't beat me. And then my family won't take me back. And so then I was walking away in order for her to get beaten, in order for her to go to her family. And in that whole story, I'm still trying to figure out what was right, what was wrong, who's correct. And that's the mess of cultural and moral relativism, I think, is, is I still don't know.
0: But, so that's I, I love the example, and I remembered what what I love is hearing a lot of these things that that we're recover, recovering four years later, and so I'm hearing them with new eyes, with new perspective, and I remember remember this example, or, or, or anyway, rather than explain it, I'll just say to me, there's a couple things at play that that I uh, that I went to. The first was as it relates to harm. And and, and to me that's the, the 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 principle that I talked about of processes or conclusions and the application of that. In this case the application is through the process and the conclusion is this this girl gets beat. To me that application, which is harm, is moral. So now I can make a statement that bad. Matt Long declares it bad. But then it becomes so fucking what? Now what? And now you get in the complexity of Chelsea's morality. What does she do about it as in that context as a powerless person? And now we, we, that's a complicated discussion because that ultimately is the discussion we have every day. At what to, at what point do we have the duty, the ability, the right, the whatever to now, affect, change, or intervene because of our moral belief. I think what you described, if what I heard about that ritual or whatever, is pretty similar to the Sam Young situation, but actually a lot more severe because the actual uh very, very observable harm is, is apparent, whereas so much of what the, the, the harm caused in the Sam Sam Young is perspective or um you know it's, there, there's some there's some subjectivity to it there's there's it's some of their, their in many cases there isn't harm it's not ubiquitous whereas beating somebody with a with a tool with an instrument is harm so i think that's a really good example but let's get into the weeds okay great when i once i declare something immoral so what what is the application of that declaration of immorality and that's a complicated question. It's a great example.
3: So in your opinions, I mean, I, I'd be really interested, you know, was I right? Was I wrong? What would you have done?
0: To me, it's easy. It's a position of, of power. I ha- if I don't have the, po- if I have, do not have the ability to intervene because of the, my role, my necessary role, then that's, that's moral. Cause I know I have no choice, but if I have the ability to intervene and choose not to because of my role, and I have the the power. I have the power to do that now. That's an, that's an immoral question. So to me, that, that that's. I think it speaks very highly to your your ability to feel real empathy for other people. But what else do you do? You, we know wrongs go around every all over the place. Do we just you know? <laughs> well. I'm going to now go here because I have heard about this thing going on at this corner. And so I am going in and intervene because I believe it wrong. So,
3: but also if, you know, I was actually wrong. The end of my story is I, I should have just backed off because the only way to get out of that guy's, you know, compound, the only way to be a full human again, the only way to not she like have the life she wanted was to get beaten. My own morality was preventing her from the healing process. Even though I didn't agree with the process that would allow her to have a full and happy life. And I was preventing that. And it took me a lot of time to realize that, that my own outrage and like, I think it was Glenn saying that emotion of seeing this thing that I think is ethically wrong and tampering that down enough to see what was right for her life and what would give her the best life. And I was, you know, it took me forever to kind of weigh those things out.
0: See, And So my critique of is the manner in which you took up that much space in that scenario in any way, shape or form your entire story is a story of you taking up space that you had no place taking up. Yes. So we're in agreement. Yeah. But I think that comes from such a good place and what a, what a, what a complicated situation that is to put another human being interacting and observing other human beings. What a, what a, what a, I mean, there, there are that is, that's
1: opening to me. All right. Well, we've got people dropping off, so I think we're <laughs> I think we're we're good to wrap up. are, are there <clears throat> like I I don't know if if I came out of this understanding moral relativism and cultural relativism and epistemological relativism really any better like I thought that we would at the beginning. Um, I I think this is going to be one of those conversations that I listen back to and I get more hearing it back the second time than when I'm in it. Um, but yeah, I, am not quite sure what to do with it at this point. Yeah,
0: I think there's
5: I, something, something in there. I like, think,
1: I think there was the, so, so one of the,
0: um, things that I was thinking about through these clips and talking about moral relativism, the relativism, I, I, this may not be anything, but the thought I have is how the, this approach and the criticism to relativism, and especially because it's, it's difficult to really understand what that means provides too much cover for people to not be relevant, relativists in areas that they ought to be. And one of the areas I was thinking about was love mm -hmm. is that instead we're not relativists. We say, this is the way I will express love and you will accept the way I express love. And if we can't agree on that, well, this, this is objective because this is love. And then too often we require other people to express love in the way we choose them to do it rather than being relative and acknowledging that expression of love is different than the way I express love. That's a different process. But if the conclusion is healthy and it's elevating and it's connecting, we need to acknowledge that and be aware of that and be open to those things, both receiving and giving here again, relativism too often. We look at expressions and only worry about the intent. And so then we start calling Things like abuse, love, and manipulation, love, and you know, codependency, love, and yeah. these things. So, so to me, uh, the first the first part was be- the 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 first line was better is that we we are not relativ- relativists in areas where it's incumbent on us to be.
5: Maybe in that space is is maybe the ideal outcome of this because my biggest criticism I think of Bogosian throughout all of this is he thinks he knows. He thinks he knows everything he needs to know. He thinks he's right. He absolutely believes in what he's saying. And that idea of, I don't know, mm-hmm. which used to be terrifying for me, is, is one of the most uplifting, beautiful things that I think I've gotten out of the last few years of my experience. That mm-hmm. space of, I don't know. And so every single interaction that I have with somebody that may have this kind of context is is wonderful and nuanced and i'm paying attention to individual experiences more than i would have otherwise if i was discounting things because i knew what the right answer was yeah
1: good point
3: so i'm taking it again in a weird way but i think it's because as i kind of shifted worked my way out of mormonism You know, through anthropology, the cultural relativism, seeing witch doctors could not make sense in my Mormon worldview, right? So I had to expand in order to be ethical, and I think kind of that route of taking me out of the church made it so I'm so relativistic that as a human, I think I'm a better person. I think I'm kinder. I'm glad I'm relativistic. But as a scientist, it drives me crazy. I'm a little like Matt in the way that I want to analyze every single variable that leads up to a decision or an outcome. I want to be able to predict these things. I want to be able to talk about, well, why is it that some people act this way and not this way? And why is it, how do you tell someone? How do you get someone out of something? And we're just not there yet. And I think that's kind of how I want to kind of end is as a scientist, people don't understand how uh, close to the tip of the iceberg we are on human social behaviors and biology and interactions. And, you know, Talcott Parsons in like the 1950s, if I'm thinking correctly, over at Harvard, 1970s maybe, he created this department that was supposed to do that. It was supposed to create all the social sciences and kind of understand humans, not in these parsed to part way, but in these, oh my God, every single interaction whether it's, hey, how are you? Which if you look at it linguistically is not even asking the question we're trying to answer, right? And the response, if you're really analyzing every single variable of human behavior, it's so complicated and we're just not even close. And that, of course, that department got disbanded. No, no one really could figure it out. And we're all just like, you know, touching our little tiny piece of the big big elephant trying to explain the world. And so for me, why relativism drives us such so crazy is because it's so rooted in such complicated, entangled webs of significance that is culture and religion and morality and your upbringing and and your biology and, you know, what books you read and your education and the language you speak that we just can't parse it apart and it drives us crazy. And I think that's why philosophers try and try and try and everyone tries to one-up each other. But really, it always comes down to the same dialogue, right? So do
1: we have a landing place? We agree how complicated it is. Yeah, so let's
0: continue to try to learn as much as we can about the world by questioning our own perception and understanding that our perspective is incredibly limited. So let's connect with other people to try to um, enlarge our uh, perspective. And one thing that you said last week I want to just touch on real quick or one of our conversations recently about, you know, to gain that perspective is finding those people Not unlike the studies that I was talking about that the process that proved to be reliable and replicatable, find those people who have been that in your life to be those check-ins to assist with the perspective. I think of the the different people in my life that I I like to call and say, I want to make sure I'm not missing something about life that is critical to this particular decision, especially issues of of, of children and other people, those relationships that matter is to have those as well and to, rather than adopting a tribe, adopting people who are at least has, have access to the complexity of your life and the complexity of other beings in your life to be that check-in so that you don't have to just rely on yourself.
3: I think you said one really brilliant thing just now that I we need to emphasize which I actually think is a more interesting question than than this whole moral relativism cultural relativism debate which is why is it that some of us are open to being wrong and some of us just are not right I think to me that yeah. is that is the that is so fascinating I don't have an answer I'm just curious and all I can tell people is Having left the church, I'm happier. Life is better. I'm kinder because I'm open to being incorrect. And that's really why I like science. I'm a total atheist, but I'm a big believer in science. And my partner, I have decided to raise our kid in like the God of science. Like it, it, figure out how to eat. Let's look at the science. Figure out how, how much exercise to do. Let's look at the science. Figure out how to interact with other humans. Let's look at science. Let's learn from each other. Always be open. And science is always be open to being fallible and learning and growing. And I think that's why the people I love the most are open to failing and learning and growing and the, the ecclesiastical or no, I said the wrong thing. Uh, Epistemological. Sorry, we're all having troubles yeah.
0: here. Hate the word. That I would be a totally
3: word. different. Uh, <laughs> argument. I was saying the ecclesiastical. <laughs> yeah. uh, the epistemological mindset that I most get behind is is science, because you're allowed to have evidence, and you're allowed to be wrong, and learn from being wrong, and continue to build on that. And that's what what relativism gave me. Is it made me have a better life and be kinder, and it made me have a, like a system I can believe in, which is quite a lot to get from. From something that none of us can
4: even define. Hi, this is Brian. I'm from Utah, California, Arizona, Georgia, Kentucky, and Nevada. I've moved 29 times, a sort of middle finger to stability in life planning. I'm sure it has nothing to do with my anxiety. Probably. You can comment on this episode at infantsonthrones.com. If you like what you hear, give this hallowed quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I obeyed. Anyone for the closing prayer? There doesn't seem to be anybody
3: genuinely think to me, that's a sign something I had to learn on my like, you know, steps of being a grown adult, grown ass adult, who's not an asshole is w- whose responsibility really do I have? Right. And and it's my kids. If they're assholes, if they're entitled, if they're jerks, if they're unkind, if they're bullies, if they turn out to be like Trump, I have failed and I have hurt <laughs> society. But other than my kids, it's not my job to control or manage. And that has been something like I've had grandmothers who are loving and grandmothers who try to control it's night and day. Who's happy. It's night and day. who's healthy, who has great social relationships. And even in our, my siblings who have all taken a different path, all eight of us on the church, we just have all had to realize it's not our job to control. Like our only job in the world with 90% of people we meet is to love and to understand and how fucking cool is that? And why did it take us so long to figure that out?
1: Yeah, I mean that sounds like a message that you would get in church,
3: <laughs>
1: right? Doesn't it?
3: Yeah, we didn't though. We were told to always like give a book of Mormon on a fucking plane, and it was so awkward. I hated doing but we, that. But
1: we were told that that was how you show love. It's all about Jesus said, love everyone, and this is how you do it. And if you do it any different way, then it's not. But it's not legit. Doesn't work. Yeah, I don't know.
2: Prove.